I'm Aaron Armstrong. I'm Peter Moran. And you're tuned in to listen to our podcast. Listen to our podcast or we'll have a better party than you. I'll be back in the high again. All the doors I close one time will open up again. Hey, Peter. Hey, Aaron. How you doing, man? I'm doing pretty good. I just saw a pretty good movie. Well, actually, let me back up. We, <laughs> we, we, um, we're going to be talking about the movie High Rise, the Ben Wheatley movie today. Uh, I think we're getting better at saying that before we go on our weird sidetrack adventure. So just if you're listening and you are unable to read the title, uh, we are going to be talking about Ben Wheatley's High Rise. In the U.S. anyways, released in 2016. In other better countries, 2015. <laughs> um, I feel uh, I can say that now that Trump is a is a nominee for president. But <laughs> forget about, let's let's stop the charade. Clearly, America's not all it's cracked up to be, at yeah. least at this moment. It's weird. I didn't know America was named after Budweiser. Yeah. <laughs> we, should, we should name our podcast America for the next six months. Um, so we're talking about High Rise. I know that Peter Peter doesn't even know what I think about it at all. Do you want to save that, Peter, or do you want to... Or why, do you want to get that out of the way? It down to a, why boil it down to a generalization? Let's just get into the movie in a little bit, and we'll uh, we'll see how you feel about individual aspects of the movie, and you can kind of <laughs> figure it out from there. Okay. All right. So I'm not. Al- I'm literally not allowed to tell people what I think of this movie? I will cancel the podcast okay. right now. Okay. I'll go re- I will drive to Minnesota just to stamp canceled on your forehead. Well, great. Now any stalkers listening know exactly where I live. <laughs> somewhere <laughs> in, the st- in one of the 50 states. Great, Peter. Uh, really no. appreciate that. I wish we had a stalker. That could be... <laughs> It would be. That's when you know you made it. That's when you know you made it. Yeah. If if someone tries to assassinate us to impress Jodie Foster, um, that's when we we've cracked it. We're big time. <laughs> Quit our jobs. I mean, you hope like like the like the real person who tried to do that. Um, you you hope that he doesn't succeed. But it feels like a Veep plotline. I know it was from Taxi Driver. It feels like a Veep plotline to have like um, a politician get excited about an assassination attempt on them because that <laughs> that means that they're. <laughs> They're finally, they're finally made it. They finally have had an effect on the American public. Yeah, Reagan got reelected. So our only experience with this as a country, uh, it improves your election chances. So. Yeah, and, and Bush did 9-11 just to get reelected. So, yep, <laughs> definitely. He did it. Imme- I mean, based on that theory, he did it fucking immediately. <laughs> he's like, I am nine months into my term. This is going terribly. He's like, he's like <laughs> I better uh, do 9-11. I already had to, to steal that election once. Uh, better yeah. better start clinching the next one soon. I never I never thought of Bush as being prepared, but I guess in that particular conspiracy world, he is. He really used his Boy Scout training for for evil, but <laughs> he still used it. He was very prepared. I love the phrases just now. Uh, Bush did nine <laughs> eleven. He pulled one of those classic nine eleven. Yeah, classic nine eleven. <laughs> so let's let's get started with our widely panned segment ideas. Um, after not having much last 
time, Peter has come to me and said, hey, Aaron, I did no research on the movie this week, but I did prepare some segment ideas. I know that Ben Wheatley made the movie. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, and it's about a apartment building, right? Sort of. Okay. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I think it's more of a condo. I think they technically own the units. Oh, okay. Well, that's great for them, then. That's my um, best guess. Uh, they, don't really, they don't really go into, like mortgage payments and see that and i'll tell you what that's why my review is going to be not to spoil it it's going to be pretty bad because when i see a movie i want to understand where their finances come from how are they paying for stuff what's their electric (laughs) bill what's their water bill um so anyways so peter i'll let i'll let you start um so my first so my first and only game is related to the fact that there's something about specifically non-king's english or queen's english english that makes it a uh, dialogue really hard to decipher for a lot of American ears. Like I love Ben Wheatley and I've, I've watched kill list maybe a dozen times. And the last like eight times I've watched it, I've just left the subtitles on. Hmm. Um, and some of that might be just like indie sound design problems. Uh, and some of that might be British accents being too thick for me to understand. So you know what you know what's funny about that is that I always hear that and I always prepare myself for that. Um, I don't know if I watched way too much Monty Python as a kid, but I always understand what these people are saying. I don't, oh, well, I, I don't know what that is. I can't always tell you what every word is in reference to, but I you know I by context clues and like the accents, even the thick accents, like it doesn't it doesn't bother me all that much. <laughs> yeah. And so during I saw this movie with a couple other people and at three different points, someone turned to me and said, uh, what did he just say? And I was just had to shrug. Uh, so the game, the name of the game is what did that British person say? OK. And now that, so now that I said that now that I said that I get it, I'm going to fail this quiz miserably. Like <laughs> a real asshole. Um, so I'm basically going to just say lines and I need you to tell me whether or not they were actually from the movie okay. or from something else. Okay. Well, that's that's kind of a different thing. That's did you memorize the movie you've seen once? <laughs> yeah, but like I reread some quotes from the movie and it's like, I don't remember that. That would have really helped. Well, let's <laughs> see if I have the equivalent of a photographic memory when it comes to dialogue <laughs> in this movie. Totally fair quiz. Let's go, Peter. Let's, let's just see. Let's just see. First line, I loathe to eat alone. It makes me feel so fat and lonely. I feel like that is from High Rise. It is actually from Shivers. Okay. <laughs> I just, I looked up quotes from other movies with tall buildings in it. That is uh, one point for me, one point not for Aaron. I, I still don't think you understand how game show hosts <laughs> work, but let's just go. And then the next one is, Allo, governor. Welcome to the high rise. Spare a copper for the coin machine. I only got two withins to me name. This feels like a trick question. You've put high rise in there, which it seems like you would only do with a plan to trick me. But having said that, you might think that I might think that. And so you'd put it in knowing that I would think there's no way that you would put this in. I'm going to say it's from high rise. (laughs) It is from uh, my uh, unproduced play, uh, (laughs) an average British conversation. None of these are going to be from High Rise, I think. Next one. Okay. There's well, no food. There's no food left. Only the dogs. And Mrs. Hillman is refusing to clean unless I pay her what I apparently owe her. Like all poor people, she's obsessed with money. Okay, that's that's definitely from High Rise. Yep, you get a point. Last one. These days, relationships with neighbors can be quite complicated. 
you know, little things get blown up and out of proportion. You know what I mean? And then the next person replies, no, no, I don't. I mind my own business. That also feels like it's from High Rise. It's from The Tenant. There is a ton of dialogue in High Rise. So I was surprised how quickly I found like eerie exchanges between neighbors and shivers and The Tenant that I could just like pull straight from and make and have it sound like it's actually from High Rise. Yep. No, you, you were able to find so much that one of the four you had to make up. <laughs> so many options. Hey, let's look one, at the, let's, two, <laughs> two options. Let's let's be a little bit more positive. I did find two that tricked you. Yeah, absolutely. But, well, but, the thing is, you know, I got to say, I wasn't even really playing the game. I was I was playing a battle of wits against what you would pick. Um, <laughs> and I lost. So I was I was playing to your game master personality, not really giving much thought to the quotes. Yeah. Except, yeah. except for the one that I knew exactly, which was from High Rise. I mean, I, I didn't just pick Shivers and The Tenant arbitrarily as well. Those are movies from... A similar time to when the original J.G. Ballard book was written and capitalize on similar fears from obviously very different audiences. Shivers is a Cronenberg movie from Canada and The Tenant is written by Roman Polanski. Um, Noted rapist. Um, <laughs> that's a callback. Um, <laughs> to, his, to his crimes. Well, yeah, and, and our episode and, about and the repulsion episode and the repulsion episode. Uh, it's our le- it's our least listened to, so I might as well <laughs> might as well try to get some uh, some more listens by throwing out that for no reason. I'm gonna do my segments very quickly. Great game, Peter. You've you've bested me once again. You can get a you can get an erection tonight. I've earned one token. <laughs> you've earned you've earned. We all know what gets you going, and that's beating people in other activities. Um, the first thing is that I would like to mention as as a popular recurring uh, website that we mention on this show. Does the dog die? Dot com. Hey Peter, does does the dog die in high rise? Within seconds. Yep. <laughs> so uh, more yeah. than one dog. We're, we're going to start giving our own warnings. I didn't even need to look that up on that website, but I imagine if we went to it and typed in high rise, we would see some very sad dog faces. <laughs> Numerous. They would come up with a new sad dog face yeah. just for this movie. You'd have um, a bite out of one side. Yeah. This is a movie that I, you know, I wanted to spend time with my girlfriend and I was like, I, Hey, you should come see this movie with me. And then I watched the trailer because I haven't read the book. Um, I was like, Oh, that dog is so dead. I didn't realize they'd throw in a twofer. But uh, that dog is so dead, which we should also notice. Note, it looks um, just like your dog. Yeah. This movie is still in theaters. It's very. It's on VOD. You should definitely uh, watch it. A lot of the previous movies we've done have been older. This one is still out in theaters. Definitely go see it uh, because we're going to talk about all of it. So uh, we don't usually. I don't usually think spoiler alerts are that important for the show. Like if we cover a movie from 1981. Yeah, this is our earliest movie. I mean, we're only a few episodes into this, but our earliest movie before this is from 1998. So we really, we really close the gap recently. Oh yes, yeah, for sure. Uh, in this, in this episode. <laughs> so, do you want to dive into the movie? Yeah, let's start talking about the movie.
if you'd like, I can do like a 90 second sort of rundown on the plot as best as I understood it from watching it once. Okay, I want you to do a 90 second rundown of the plot. I'm going to, if you don't mind, I'm going to, I'm going to try a new segment where we do a five second rundown of the plot. Okay. (laughs) And I'm going to do the five second. And then if you think that that five second recap was not good enough. Then I want you to do your 90-second recap. Spoiler alert, it's not going to be good enough. All right, um, you ready? Yep. Okay. First half of the go. movie, Kondo's nice. Second half of the movie, not so nice. <laughs> there we go. Perfect. <laughs> um, I don't feel like I really have to, to top that, do I? Well, um, no. I mean, I was going to say, just in case some asshole hasn't watched the movie and is listening to this, but I feel like maybe we should stop calling potential listeners assholes, Peter. Where's the fun in that? Yeah, so the movie in 90 seconds, uh, I think Aaron did a great job, but the movie in 90 seconds is essentially a physiologist named Dr. Lang, he's playing by Tom Hiddleston, moves into a new uh, high-rise building that is separated by classes, uh, not in any sort of official manner, it's just more the lower levels are typically people of lower income, and the roof is where a Dr. Royal lives, who's the, the architect of the building. And this building is built um, in a sort of 1970s futurism manner, very similar to a lot of the architecture in Clockwork Orange. And so Dr. Lang is meeting people in the building, the people that, he, that lives around him um, are throwing these part these lavish parties that he's attending and he's sort of getting to meet all the the cast of characters in the movie and he starts sleeping with sienna miller's character who has a precocious little boy who's very curious and very smart and uh, he also meets wilder who is this agent of chaos throughout the movie and is essentially blamed for rightfully or wrongfully for um all the chaos that is being caused in the building by the rich. Lang gets to see both sides of it. And at a certain point in the movie, Lang is embarrassed by one of the upper class parties. Lang seeks a petty revenge on Monroe, who is one of his doctor students who also happens to live in the building. And Monroe, thinking that he has cancer, (laughs) commits suicide. This, for Lang at least, marks the beginning of a turning point wherein the building just sort of collapses in on itself. It's just utter chaos. People are throwing parties. The po- There's a power failure that's causing a lot of this chaos, uh, that there's sort of a discrepancy between who's getting the power. Upper force seem to be getting it. Lower force seem to be not getting it, which leads ultimately to a conflict between Wilder and Royal going head to head, wherein Wilder kills Royal and then Royal's harem of women kills Wilder in a new... Uh, age is born for the building. Yeah, I think that was pretty good. The one clarification I would make is that there is a big montage in the middle that kind of shows this, the descent into chaos, so I don't think that's necessarily supposed to... It definitely starts happening after Monroe kills himself, but the passage of time from everything's relatively normal to complete chaos, it, it you know, it starts at the beginning of the montage and then the chaos is basically taken over the building by the end of it. But I don't know how much time is supposed to have passed. It, it, it's shown to progressively be getting worse. We're going to say basically between the beginning of the movie where we see the chaos has already kicked in. Like we say, Lang is already eating a dog. This beautiful sort of husky shepherd kind of dog. He looks exactly like my dog, which made it 
these scenes a Which lot harder to giggle at. Made you really hungry. Yeah, it made me really hungry when I got home. Your, your dog looked like chicken. Like <laughs> yeah, that did, having a dog that looked exactly like my dog made that scene uh, way harder. Um, <laughs> I'd but, imagine. But they say there's three months between the beginning of the movie and that outright chaos at the end. So the fall of Rome, so to speak, of the movie, where it just devolves into this this hedonistic chaos is, I don't know, two months? Like, yeah, I, I, I think most of that time passage feels like it takes place in that montage. It's true. It, feel, it feels like we're seeing like a week, you know, at the beginning of the movie and then maybe a week at the end. And I was looking at, and reading some reactions online after I saw it. And there's definitely people that seem to think it just happened overnight. Yeah, and I think that the chaos is, is precipitated. Lang marks it as, with the suicide. Other people in the building don't, I think, mark it with the suicide as much. Uh, Wilder does also, because that's when he decides to make his film. He says, how could a man jump from the 36th floor and nobody, uh, not a single police officer is called? But for a lot of people around the building, the suicide doesn't seem to have much import. For the rich people that Monroe was hanging out with, I don't think it had that much no, of an impact. No, not at all. It's more the, po- the power failure seems to be this, the one thing that's cutting through the movie, that people think that if they can get the power back, they can get the balance back. Uh, the, the, the nice thing about that Fall of Rome sequence is that the system seemed like it was doomed to fail from the beginning. From, like, the ground up, it seemed to have structural flaws. It, yeah. It's not like a typical apocalypse thriller that has a sort of Tinker Tailor quality to it. Like, we see this virus get released in the water. We see, you know, these zombies attack, you know, small towns. Then we see them attack Washington, D.C. or whatever. It's sort of like an apocalyptic thriller wherein the apocalypse is sort of an afterthought. And I think it would be a much less interesting film if the film was concerned about showing why the building descended into chaos because ultimately it doesn't matter that's not the point i think kind of glossing over that in a montage format was was perfect for the story and the experience that the movie was trying to give so i agree i, uh, I, agree. I think it and i think it helps the sort of abstract quality that the movie has the movie yep. does not work on a literal level it works on a sort of allegorical level very much like snowpiercer it i think snow i think snowpiercer so okay I definitely want to get into that because there were some Snowpiercer comparisons. I I know you had joked about me not saying it to the end. You're going to get some hints of my feelings of this movie by the effusive praise I'm about to talk about for the next hour or so. So <laughs> let me just let me just say I fucking loved this movie. It is my favorite movie of 2016 at this point. Yeah. I'm I'm glad that we are both on the same page for this guy, especially after, you know, Dark City, which is, you know, indicative of our relationship at that point last week man yeah really we really hit a low in that dark dark city yeah we were about to drop papers and separate the podcast (laughs) peter was gonna get listened to and i was gonna get our podcast and then we were gonna form little splinter groups where i only talked about dark city and Peter talked about just how much he he hated being wrong. Um, so anyway. <laughs> we split we split up all we split up all zero of our assets and all yep. the many liabilities. So yeah, I, I absolutely love this movie. It kind of floored me. And the I should say the only other Ben Wheatley movie I've seen is Kill List, and I really liked it. You know, I, I thought it was it was definitely a gut punch of the movie. But like, I I think this is a fucking masterpiece up there with some of my favorite versions of dystopian futures. So I think this gets into the other thing that we should talk about before we get into the movie further, which neither of us have read the book. 
And a lot of the allegorical stuff that the movie is touching on, I have basically no uh, familiarity with. Like, I know the, the movie ends with a Margaret Thatcher speech. I know, obviously, the socioeconomic stuff is interesting and it's present in the movie, but I don't understand it enough for this to serve as any sort of complex allegory for me besides just basically, you know, poor versus rich. Because when I went and looked, uh, and looked at other people's reactions, it does seem that if you read this book, you were disappointed by this movie. Um, I read some. It, it, I guess it depends also on your your philosophy towards adaptation because way that they, people are describing the difference between the book and the movie, I was like, that sounds... Perfect. The book's supposed to be more staid and, and cold. I've read the book, I, um, and the movie is more wild and insane in terms of its energy and its tone, and more. It, the movie is more over the top. I don't actually know if any of that bears out. That's just sort of what I've been catching from reviews and reactions. And it would have been. It would have been. And it's like the fact that it even got made is pretty impressive. I would be impressed if I were some sort of super fan of the book. Yeah, I, and I so I feel like this podcast could potentially be infuriating, but you know, so we 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 are going to be discussing this from a what's on screen, what we enjoyed about it. I agree with you that adaptations should be their own thing and and separated from whatever movie ends up being made by them. But I know that can be sometimes hard to do in your head. That's a goal that doesn't always uh, end up being reality. Uh, but to tell, but to tell you how much, how little I knew about even Ballard, th- this movie very much has that '70s style and clothing, and I was like, "Oh, that's an interesting director's choice." And then one of my notes is actually, "Wait, was the book written in the '70s? Is that why he did?" It? Like, I didn't even, and maybe that speaks to my ignorance, but it does tell you how fresh I'm going into this movie. I didn't even seen a trailer. I didn't know anything about it. So the other thing I want to talk about, and I, I feel like this could be easy to talk about as we go into uh, specific scenes of the movie, but it's my favorite part of the movie, and I kind of wanted to get it out there earlier. This movie reminded me quite a bit of Clockwork Orange and Brazil. One of my favorite things that this movie does is make the bizarreness and the craziness, once everything really breaks down uh, to apocalyptic nightmares, where the building's falling apart and people are dying, and, I mean, just it's just complete and utter chaos. The trash um, chute is jammed. Well, yeah, yeah, that is the biggest thing that happens. <laughs> Some maintenance issues. Um, no, but the fact that people can't find their cars, there's no police coming... It's, it's the way that everyone treats those events as not even remotely eyebrow-raising. That they're still concerned about stuff like parties. Even the scene at the party where Monroe kills himself, no one bats an eye. I think that that is so creepy. I think the reason that that works so well is because it's so alien to us. Like, we're, we're kind of a culture that, you know, we're known for our slowing down our cars to look at a car accident. When something out of the ordinary occurs, we slow down and watch. Anything that's outside of our routines is interesting to us. So the idea of an entire universe breaking down and, and the way that these people in this universe are wired is to just, okay, well, still got to go to work, to not even give it a second glance. And there's not that many movies that do it, but it is such an amazing uh, way to make your audience feel completely alienated and chilled by the world that they're seeing. Yeah, I think that's a really terrific horror technique, the, the idea of underplaying something horrible. Yeah. Like this sort of downplaying of something that is so 
horrible and so massively life-altering. Yeah, that's like a pretty pretty common like horror movie technique that I really, really enjoy. And I'm curious if, since this book was written for, you know, 1970s Britain, if the calmness at which they go at this is like, so specifically British. I'm curious if that sort of reaction where people are, you know, getting sort of excited and, and sort of not minding their own business. I'm curious if that's a specifically American thing and and that part of the blaseness of this is like specifically British. So you're right. There may be something about that sensibility. I can't imagine that real English people, though, aren't interested when 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 strange things occur. I don't know if it's all stiff upper lip and look the other way. Especially to the level that they do, so there there may be something to that. But and I agree with you. It, it's great when 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 horror movies underplay something. I just think that this is a, a an example of everything being underplayed. And at no point when the world descends into chaos does anyone really bat an eye at the chaos. Again, they're they're concerned with electricity. They're concerned with the parties. They they don't even seem all that concerned about how they're going to get food. Just, oh, the food's downstairs and people that don't like us are downstairs. You know, it's underplayed throughout that. I mean, underplayed almost feels like it's selling it short. Like it's it's not even remarked upon for the most part. Yeah. And I think that the moments where the movie springs into action in that sort of manner where people are reacting emotionally to stuff like that Mm -hmm. are that much more powerful Yep, because so much of the movie is about how people go on with their lives with everything falling apart around them. So like there's a, there's a very interesting thing where the party is just a massive distraction from the chaos and the violence. And and there's a pretty great sequence of Lang after the suicide of Monroe that he was, you know, at least partially responsible for, that he's just working out on a machine. And it's, I, I'm not like in great shape or something like that, but it, it is something that I do for myself. Like that's one of the things I self-medicate where I'm like really pissed off about something. I go running or I go do something really like physically exertive. It doesn't fix the problem but it makes the problem further away from me. So when, yeah, when people, when people, when the, the, the mask slips and the facade breaks, that's, those are the, the, the big operatic moments in this movie. Yeah. And I think when Lang is kind of doing that, working out and losing it, uh, that's such a great moment too. Cause that's during the whole montage of everything descending into chaos. You actually have two things going on. You're seeing we're, we're following Lang still at this point in the movie, but he is still going, trying to go about his daily life as if nothing is going on around him. So he's stepping over garbage piles. Like he is just dead eyes focused at the horizon <laughs> and just, and just trying to live. He, he's, he's the one in the building that seems to have some idea of what this normal life is and what it's like to be a normal person. He actually seems like the least human, even though he behaves for, for most of the movie with the most empathy. He, he seems like he's trying to keep up the facade of someone who is in normal existence to the point that that whole montage scene has an extra sense of hilarity because he is just not participating at this point. He's going about his day. He's going to work. Doesn't matter if there's bodies in front of him. Doesn't matter that people are chasing each other through the halls. It's just I've got work to do and then I come home and then I sit at my house and then I try to find paint. And he and notice what he's wearing during all yep. of this. He's whole- wearing his suit that's just falling. He's even working out in a suit, mm-hmm. which is a, always a hilarious image. And he, it's just falling apart. He's turned them into capris. 
but he's still yeah. wearing his tie. <laughs> yeah, that's at the very end. Yeah, and someone someone remarks on it. So very very early in the movie, it feels like characters are almost speaking in non sequiturs to each other. I don't know if you picked up on that. Like their responses didn't make any sense a lot of times, and the way that they verbalized and interacted with each other. It was almost like people having two separate conversations. And there's there's that moment where he goes to pool party very early in the movie, and, he's, and he shows up wearing his suit, and he's wearing trunks in his hand. And someone sa- and someone says to him, "Oh, you haven't changed." And he said, "Sorry, I can't." <laughs> and it's such a but no one no one raises an eyebrow at that. And there's other weird stuff too, like. So at first I thought, okay, they're trying to do this weird thing where people speak in non sequiturs and to throw you off base because the the first half hour of the movie is so disorienting with the scenes it's jumping to. But what I realized is it is a almost foreshadowing to a different degree of what's going to occur later, which is everyone is unaffected by everyone else. They are focused on what they're doing. So later on that that materializes in you know, people going about their day when someone is lying dead on the floor next to them or garbage is piling up. Early on in the movie, that materializes as someone saying a sentence or a question and someone responding in a way that doesn't necessarily make sense, but no one really cares that that's happening. I agree. There's a sort of detachment. I think, you know, like I said, might be also a British thing that might be part of the reason we find it so alien. I feel like this is going to be somewhat insulting to British people. Will it be? I feel I don't like. Know. I feel like, no, I think I feel like it's not... Well, I mean, you just call them a, aliens, right? <laughs> no, I think it would be somewhat alien for to us. Yeah. Where, They're weird people. Where the it's riffing off of... The movie might be somewhat alienating to us because the movie is, might be riffing off of a sort of British tendency, but blowing it up to 11. Because um, that's what the movie is. The movie is, is, like I said earlier, it's more allegory than a realistic portrait of a... Uh, post-apocalyptic building i feel like the building is supposed to be some sort of metaphor for england like it's its <laughs> island yeah I, I think so and then there's other islands at the end but uh that's the other thing about this movie and our discussion of it is that uh, our lack of understanding about british politics from like the 1970s onward is probably going to make our discussion of it more shallow i think i do think it's funny that you just said though that we don't know much about british politics from the 1970s onward which sort of implies that like 1969 and previously we got this shit (laughs) we we just haven't we haven't got to the later chapters in the book like you would never get to you never get to world war ii in elementary school history class you spend way too much time on the mayflower like we're gonna get there guys uh but i do I do think it's interesting, though, because in, in in regards to our podcast, you know, even though we've, we've both done movies on this podcast that we haven't seen, they have sort of a cultural cachet, and we're, we're aware of elements or something about it. Seeing a movie that, that is this new, we haven't had time to catch up with the conversation on it, and the conversation is still happening. Um, yeah, which is fun, because I can tell already that this is going to be going to become a cult movie. It's a tough thing to say in the moment, especially as the movie is so new. I say it for a couple reasons. One, cult movies are more easy to develop when they're already attached to a noted director. Yeah, and basically all of his movies are cult movies. Yeah, all of them have like an instant love around them. Um, So it's the sort of movie that I will be, I've been chewing on since I saw it. And I will continue, not just because of the show, but just because it's like, it's fucking good. It's a very fascinating and weird and 
thrilling experience to watch something that challenges you in this manner. And it didn't challenge me in a way that I found condescending. It didn't challenge me in a way that I found rude or even uh, boring. <laughs> it, it, it's, it's sense of place uh, in the culture right now is super divisive. And yep. I think that that's only going to help it over time. The fact that Rex Reed's score on Metacritic is a zero and that there's also like A.O. Scott gave it like a middling review and the AV Club gave it like an 88 or something. And I don't really give a shit about Metacritic reviews, but it's more the fact that like I was trying to jump around and see like how people are reacting to this movie. And it's all across the board, which I yep. think bodes really well for it over time. Yeah, it's definitely connected with an audience, and there's people that I respect as film critics or just general reviewers I know that have fucking hated this movie in a kind of a surprising way. So, yeah, I think this is going to be an interesting one to kind of keep tabs on through the years and w and what its reputation ends up being. And we'll have we'll have weekly check ins. Uh, we're going to start a new segment that's called "What, what Do People Think of High Rise Now?" So that we we are monitoring its progress year over year, week after week. To make sure enough of you have converted to this cult. Yeah, we're only going to be – this is going to be an all-high-rise podcast. <laughs> um, actually, the, the other thing before we kind of get into scenes or moments in the movie that we want to talk about – so I kind of feel like we should talk about the allegory or the allegorical aspects of the movie. Uh, we mentioned Snowpiercer earlier. That seems like a recent touch point that has a similar – I mean, almost – uh, the difference in at least um, how the classes are arranged between vertical and horizontal. Uh, here they're at the top of the building, and in Snowpiercer they're at the front of the train. Um, and, and the interesting thing is Snowpiercer has a sort of gradual quality to it. Mm -hmm. And this movie... Well, maybe it doesn't actually. In this movie, No, it does, because they're moving through it. Yeah, you're right. There's, there's like variations on working classes in there. Uh, in this movie, there aren't haves and have-nots so much as middle like working class or middle class people and the haves it's it's more like the 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 rich versus the middle class that wish to be rich and are are feeding into uh, illusion that they can become rich with enough you know chutzpah and the movie is sort of saying like no that that's not going to happen well here's so here's where it gets a little confusing though there's a part early on where the power goes out where they're saying that the, the upper floors are getting more power. One of the lower class people says, why should they get all the power? We're paying as much as them. And now that does contradict later with, I think, Elizabeth Moss's character does say, I wish we could afford to move to the upper floors. But I almost got the sense that the class assignment isn't necessarily based on money because there's a couple other implications that the, the, the quote unquote rich or better people aren't paying more they're just better people or have more means or more influence or, or the more right cultured. Blood. Yeah. So I, I don't know if it's actually the haves or have nots. I think it's the born withs and the born withouts. I don't know what most of them do for money except for the TV show anchor. So it's yeah. hard to say. It's hard to say because Lang is one of the few people with a job. Him, the TV show anchor. Uh, Royal is an architect. Uh, Wilder is documentarian. a documentarian, but he's like out of work, really. Like he, he's like, it's hard to say like how any of these. Well, people when are we when we finally see a scene from his documentary, it's just a just like porn. Mm -hmm. So I don't, I don't know. We should say this movie is very funny. 
And I think but I think like to, black, black, black yeah, comedy. Like really, like, really, yeah, pitch black. I remember I think, people referring to Big Lebowski as a black comedy. This is like a double black comedy. <laughs> yep. Super triple secret black <laughs> comedy. And and that's why I think in, in if we're using Snowpiercer as the reference point for class allegory. I think, I think that Snowpiercer is concerned about class. That's the spine of the movie. It makes a rousing, amazing action movie around that theme. But I think that this movie is using class as a farce and a joke. And I don't think it's necessarily meant to be like you, you walk away from this and think of it as some sort of reflection on on lower and upper class um, wrapped in an apocalyptic genre movie. Like, I, I think that it's just there almost like, like a, like a Louis Bunuel film um, that it's, it's used to make, make pitch black jokes and create a story. But I don't know how interested it is to make any serious points. I think that the movie is strongly against the idea of class division and that it's, but it has some acid for both the ad, the agitators, as they say in mm-hmm. the in the the middle class, it also has, but it has most of its acid for I think for the upper class because they're the ones who uh, end up looking the most petty and the most silly. Like they have these, they throw a party wherein this is the one where Lang is embarrassed at, wherein they're all dressed in like French, foppish, uh, yeah, like Marie Antoinette era like garb and powdered wigs the whole nine <laughs> and they basically make fun of lang for showing up in a suit and the him getting bounced by simmons with simmons in the garb is like a hysterical image mm-hmm. and it's supposed to sort of highlight that like these are people putting on a big show and any sort of if you if you view it at any angle it, it's going to look ridiculous the movie is i think like i think um the movie's been called a comedy, and I think that's like a really great way to unlock it because it helps a lot of the the broadness that might not sit well with people. Snowpiercer's broadness, I think, is like from a different direction. I think Snowpiercer's broadness is like from a political revolutionary stance, and it's trying to to basically like make big broad statements about politics and how revolutions work and how class warfare works and, and especially because it was made by a Korean director with a you know international cast uh, Snowpiercer thinks that if it makes its message too subtle then it'll uh, be lost in translation and this movie is way more I don't want to say muddled because it sounds like an insult but it's way more of a, a, a thrill ride I have no idea what Ballard is truly truly saying at the end of the day except for that he doesn't like Margaret Thatcher I think the reason why a lot more of the humor is directed at the the well-off or the top floors is because I think there's funnier joke at poking fun of the hedonistic tendencies of the upper class and the way that they uh, they live and what they're focused on. So I think I think it has more jokes based on that. But I I don't think that the movie has much sympathy for the lower classes. I think that they. They're, they're not seen to know what's going on. Most of their plans are pretty stupid. Like, we're going to make a documentary about this. Uh, for what? Like, it never... The outside world I, specifically has been paid not to care. Yeah, it, it's... And what's the, what are they going to show? He doesn't even seem to know. Where we're Snowpiercer, the heroes of the movie are the lower class. This, I think that, yeah, I mean, there's no heroes of this movie... Our, our, our perspective character, Tom Hiddleston, he is, is definitely in the middle of the building. I think he's on floor 25. 
and he is it's closer to upper than lower and he kind of goes crazy with guilt halfway through the movie and we kind of lose his perspective so i think everyone is is made a fool in this movie and there's i just think there's probably better jokes about the weird horse fucking orgy or whatever happened. <laughs> um there's and yeah exactly and there's it's much more fun to punch up than punch down so in general making fun of people that like are you know ambitious and are just trying to get a better life for their family isn't as like as a class uh isn't as much fun as punching at the people who were born into decadence Mm -hmm. and live there and are losing and have completely lost touch if they ever had touch with the common man yeah and i would say that the if you're going to assign a hero to the movie, it's the kid. And that kid is a combination of Roman and Charlotte, which is upper and lower class. The The idea is that he's going to be the heir to all this and be the new architect of this building, which um, they're trying to rebuild. But, I mean, there's dead bodies floating in the pool and they're eating the dogs. And as far as I know, there's no more grocery deliveries uh, <laughs> coming. So it's like more controlled chaos uh, or at the very least, they have no one to – the lower classes have no one to rail against. I think that is the joke on the lower floors in this movie is that they have seen Roman as the architect of their pain. He has no control over the building. He – I mean at the very end, they're focused – he's focused on getting his wife back and they're just – they're t- still talking about their parties that they're going to have. Um, they have no more control about the power. He's not – He's not uh, diverting power from the lower floors. The The building is just complete chaos. <laughs> yeah, so he's I, built a shitty system that happens to benefit the the upper floors, and he just hasn't found a way to fix it. Yeah, so I, I think that the joke on the lower floors, the lower classes put the blame on one face, and at the end of the day, after they've toppled Roman, their problems aren't solved. They just now have no one to fight against and are like, maybe we should rebuild society. If the joke on the on the upper class people is that they're foppish and out of touch and are lunatics, they've kind of gone mad by not having any sort of real world concerns to focus on. The joke on the lower classes is that they pick a target and focus on that and maybe succeed in their goals, but don't solve any of their problems. And there's... Another layer uh, going on with the fact that, like, yeah, we see the lower class, like, there's a background character, basically, who finds out that his wife is screwing around in him. And as soon as the blackouts happen, he takes advantage of that and murders his wife. The next scene we see is his wife being shoved deeper into a uh, dumpster. Not that anyone would care if she was murdered because... Exactly. He's like... No no one gives a shit at all. <laughs> he's, he's doing that under the cover of night and people are like beating people to pulps and it doesn't even like... It doesn't even rate a, a glance up from their drinks right in front of them. Exactly. Even, even the suicide, they're just like, weird, no one's cleaned that up. Yeah, they're like... like Oh, and then now the parking lot devolves into chaos as well. Well, you guys all presumably brought your cars here. You have what means of leaving. And then as time goes on, your means of leaving stop because the parking lot is just trashed, either from people throwing stuff off, people coming back and just like not 
bothering parking their cars correctly. Like, yeah, one of, my, one of my favorite little scenes about the parking lot is Lang walking out of the building uh, with someone else, I forget who, maybe Monroe, and them saying that they would give each other rides to work if they either of them knew where their cars were. But then they still <laughs> go walk out into the giant sea of cars. I'm not sure if the implication is that they just took a bus or walked to work because they are in cars later. Did they just take a car? It's such a weird underplayed scene where, yeah, I don't know where my car is either. Well... You know, best of luck to you. Whoever yeah. finds it first gets to work. Yeah, exactly. I I think that that is, speaks to this sort of tone of the movie, which I'm sure makes a lot of people annoyed, especially with the fact that the movie isn't that concerned with plot. It speaks a lot to the tone of the movie, wherein people are trying to get by despite the fact that, yes, there's chaos happening around them. And also, this lifestyle is inherently unnatural. They're in this strange building that doesn't really serve their needs, even though it was sold to them as something that would perfectly suit their needs. I mean, when Lang first moves in, he seems to be in love with the building. He's got his hands over the, the exposed pillars, and he's just, like, feeling up his kitchen and smoking a cigarette, just sitting on the floor. Like, he's just, like, in love with his, his new condo, his new apartment. I would, and too. It's a very nice condo. It is. Told, it is. Before it, before it uh, devolves into murder, I would totally live there. That's the other weird thing about uh, these movies. It's like, the set design is so gorgeous. It's like, yeah, we would also love to live in an apartment with those ex- that exposed concrete with the sort of ribbing on it and the, those amazing balconies and the sort of like minimalist, really handsome look to it. Like that. And our neighbors just fuck us. And our neighbors just have sex with us no matter what. <laughs> And and I think that that's one of the interesting things about the movie. And I don't know if this is a pro or a negative. Is that the building was immediately, for someone, for me as a city dweller, I was immediately like, oh, I could live in that apartment. Yeah. <laughs> it's pretty no, good. That, that's my first note is, oh, I want to live there. That's, um, <laughs> I also think part of the reason that Lang especially is at home here is because he feels like there's clearly a backstory of some terrible stuff that has happened to Lang. And I mentioned earlier that he definitely seems to want to be a normal person, whatever that means to him. So I think him buying into this fantasy of now you're, you're a condo owner. I think that speaks to him wanting to be normal. So I think, I think there is some, when he's like running his hands on the stove, I was thinking I think, the same thing. Yeah. He sort of if, fetishizes it. Yep. Now I have a stove. Cause if you have an oven, and you own a house or an apartment or a condo that has an oven, that, that is like a sign of, I own basic appliances for my needs. I am a normal person. <laughs> I've, I've, I've managed to find the passport into respectable society. Yeah, like the biggest thing, I think that you could probably say this to anyone, except those fucking people that own houses all their lives. <laughs> um I think you probably say, like, the biggest... This running gag that we're just pissed (laughs) off. It's not not even... I don't even know. Gag seems like we're we're really overselling it. Um, uh, But uh, I think think you could say that for a lot of people in their lives, like, the first probably adult thing that they really felt like they were adults were when they bought a couch. You know what adulthood is? Adulthood is trying to get back to zero. Yeah, it's, I got, it's I got, almost minimizing worry. What can I take off my worry list? Yeah, so like when I, I got a car like two years ago almost, and the day, about a month after I 
purchased it. I got rear-ended when I was parked outside of work, and the guy just drove off, and I didn't... Yeah. I reported it and everything. It's just, like, fucking... Like, it is so easy, apparently, to get away with hit and runs. Um, Because he did it, and there were cameras, and the cops, I don't even think, bothered, like, accessing the camera footage, or they just couldn't find anything worthwhile. And so I just had to pay out-of-pocket just to get back to zero. Like, I wanted... I just, like, didn't want to have my brand new fucking car smashed in anymore yeah it's uh it's infuriating and that really is because adulthood is just this massive anxiety so it's like what what can i not be anxious about anymore and that's that's all you're trying to do is like well i'm always going to be anxious about my job and i'm always going to be anxious about uh my relationships and that my kids are growing up well and all this other stuff so it's like what can i not worry about oh the clicking sound my dishwasher's making <laughs> that that i that's an actual anxiety i can put to bed that's all life is is trying to put as many of those anxieties to bed as you can so that you can be a normal functioning member of society so do you have any like i, I know we haven't we've kind of touched on some scenes do you have any bigger things you want to talk about uh, the movie in general, or should we start getting down to some moments? Um, I actually had a... Uh, we've sort of touched on the broadness of the movie. Were you fine with the fact that a lot of the names were on the nose? Like, Royal was one of the members of the upper class. Wilder was, like, this agent of chaos. Like, wh- were you fine with the, 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 the that sort of broadness, where it's basically the movie winking at you? So, I was so engaged in the movie i didn't even make that connection till right at this moment it, di- it didn't even occur to me yeah i mean uh i think <laughs> i mean you you have a good point uh, those names are absolutely on the nose now that you've pointed out to me and i i can feel two ways i can feel like a complete idiot for not even thinking that deep into those names or i can say the movie is so fucking effective that was not a concern to me. <laughs> um, I'm going to go with choice one, which I know is probably a surprise choice. I'm going to go with I'm an idiot. I No, I think that it's something that if, if you don't notice it, then it doesn't irritate you. That's like a good thing. <laughs> yeah. Part of the show is going to be figuring out what irritates us and what doesn't irritate us. Nope. I, I basically just wanted to touch on that. I actually didn't take that many notes because I saw this in a real life theater and I uh, have not escalated to the point where I have a pen light. So, oh. see, I actually had the actors act it out for me. I'm I'm that I'm upper floor, buddy. <laughs> I, uh, I I got the director together. They put on a whole stage play for me. <laughs> Cost millions of dollars, but it went right to the taxpayers. So it was fine. So I I actually have a lot of things. So hopefully, maybe some of this stuff will will trigger a memory in you. So one thing I thought was interesting is, and I, I, I at one point I just was taking some notes about things about this world that are different than our own world, or at least uh, askew from our own world. So, and I'll just read those off. They don't have, they don't think kids are special or interesting. Like everyone kind of fucking hates kids in these movies. They are best an inconvenience. Um, and, and that's not just the characters. That's like the director kind of treats, which if you've seen. I have kill, seen kill list. Yeah. You've seen kill list. You've seen sightseers. You know that uh, Ben Wheatley doesn't believe in sparing the children. It's always just weird because even movies that are dismissive of kids. I mean, these people just. And I, th- I think that's one of the weird delineations between the upper and lower floors. 
that the lower floors have kids. Yeah. Well, I think that's also supposed to be, and I'm curious what this is supposed to be actually touching on, but I think that's supposed to be the idea that like Wilder has like 30 kids that he just doesn't know what they're doing. I'm curious if that's like an accidentally classist thing and I don't, it it must not be because of how complex the messaging in the movie at least seemed to me. The idea that Wilder just has like 30 kids that run rampant and he like agitates them to run rampant. Like even like his wife is, his wife is introduced as pregnant, which by the way, smoking and drinking wine pregnant well that's just the 70s yeah that was that was the, that was really jarring to see all the smoking in the movie is jarring to see but seeing a pregnant woman smoke a cigarette and drink wine was particularly jarring because i think that's like a period thing that people just don't do anymore because it immediately if to modern audiences that person is immediately flagged as a villain yeah <laughs> and there aren't that many pregnant women villains in movies so. people get fucking the cops called them on them for leaving their kids to play in the front yard like you walk around drinking and smoking when you're pregnant, you, yeah, you're you're a monster. You were literally, you will literally make it to the MSNBC front page. My mom, yeah. my mom will tisk at you and say, "What a shame." <laughs> so, some other things about these people in this world: they are super concerned about garbage disposal. That that goes away. I wrote that much earlier in the movie. Uh, they're all super horny. Again, that can just be the '70s. It's uh, the swinging '70s, man. Yeah, and and I think that makes sense to like. They see any sort of environmental or cause in general as a flight of fancy. Like, there's specific mentions to uh, some volunteering that people are trying to do or working on recycling. And every other character kind of dismisses that outright where she likes to go on her flights of fancy. Um, They definitely like their parties, which... Again, that a note I wrote early on that became basically the crux of the movie. That's all all just fit in stuff. Yep. Don't be a weirdo with your own habits and your own ideas. Like, come join the party. Yep. Uh, there is a mention to that they're at war. I don't know how that factors into the isolation of the high-rise in general, but there is a couple mentions to them saying, well, we are at war. I don't know what that means. I don't know if they're just... I mean, in this movie, they could just be at war with other apartment complexes. <laughs> it might not be something that's going on in the country, but that was there. And then also, uh, this is this is extremely specific. Uh, to Elizabeth Moss's character, but she wipes the sweat off her brow with plants a couple times, which is I don't I don't know what the fuck that's supposed to mean, but it was it was a it was a choice, and now so- someone's gonna like write in to a, our show, which is a thing that you can do. <laughs> so let's take some callers on the toll free line. Um, <laughs> I just assume this is another in your theory that like uh, a lot of these movies are just the exact same year universe, but just one thing is different. And then this universe hand towels don't exist. I think that waves away anyone who nitpicks movies like well, in this universe bullets just automatically pop into guns. <laughs> in this universe, you can apparently just wave off cops with money uh, despite the fact that, oh, wait, that's our universe, too. Yeah, <laughs> that's all universes. <laughs> that's all universes. Yeah, so those those are kind of the strange things about the world. Again, it's supposed to be off kilter in a way that you're never really able to get your bearings on. So Oh, it I is could chaotic see- from yeah. the word go. So I also like, one thing I really liked about this movie, and I don't think that many movies do, when you make a movie about descending into chaos, normally... You, you get to spend a little, like, the climax of most of these types of movies is the full descent into chaos. And I fucking love the fact that we get a whole hour 
with this nutso world that this apartment building descends into. Yeah, I agree with you. I think that obviously it has to be like earned chaos, but in a lot of these movies in particular, like my only disappointment with Conquest of the Planet of the Apes, apart from, you know, it could have used a little bit more money in the monkey special effects budget, is that the rebellion doesn't happen sooner and longer. I like when movies sort of take the idea that you're thinking like, oh, well, this movie's going to show you all the, the underlying cracks that caused this this uh, apartment building to fall to you know its foundation. And instead, they're like, actually, we're just going to show you that the system fell apart. And then as the movie goes on, you're going to be like, well, why did the system ever work in the first place? Yeah, I think it's fine. I think one thing that I love about movies or art in general is it transports you to a world that you're never going to see. I'm never going to live in an apartment building that turns into a microcosm version of the apocalypse. It can be sometimes disappointing when you watch a movie and you want to see one thing and you don't get to see it. And I think the fact that this movie really gives you time with what the consequences of of that event occurring is is enough because I, I think that too many movies try to try to use those things as climaxes. There is something to be said about leaving you wanting more. But you know what? A lot of times I just want to see them more. Yeah. I mean, uh, it's it's really hard to make a, a chaotic scene in a movie and not feel like either A, silly because it's just a bunch of people running around mm-hmm. or B, just so crazy that you have no you, you have no human connection to it. So, you mm-hmm. can't just like put crazy images on our screen and then be able, and then have us identify with it. It needs to be a chaos that has a bit of humanity in it. And we need to feel like this is human driven pandemonium. Yeah, I I think you're right. It kind of reminds me of uh, that scene in Dark City. I'm just kidding. I, I want to start a bit where anytime we talk about uh, another movie that relates to something, my only example is Dark City and it's only in a positive light, I think. <laughs> <laughs> That's going to be my new segment where the only other movie I talk about besides the besides the one we're covering is Dark City. Like, um, oh, I'm really glad you liked the ending. You know what movie had a really good ending, though? Dark City. Uh, yeah, I like, I like the way the building looks in this movie, much like the buildings in Dark City. Um, <laughs> they, they don't look similar, but they're both good. Yeah. Is what I'm saying. They're both, they're both good buildings. Yeah, they're, they're good buildings. So I also like that, the, that there was a master plan. Uh, behind this complex that is never really parsed out or explained because Royal talks about that he wanted to use this building as a crucible for change. Whatever that means is never defined, but he keeps referring it to the end where he even says, well, I wanted this building to be a crucible for change. Maybe it was. Like, (laughs) that's such a... It still is a weird thing for any architect to be like, I'm going to make this building and it is going to be a crucible for change (laughs) like maybe a crucible for better rent prices or (laughs) crucible for nice views i mean again you probably wouldn't want to use the term crucible to describe your desire to uh give people better parking but uh (laughs) i love the way that they're and i think this is true of kill list too the only other ben wheatley movie that i've done where he's basically making a movie and he's not giving you an entry point into that world that makes sense from a movie standpoint. Yeah, and I, I think that the alien world aspect of it is set up early enough that it, the movie isn't alienating in uh, later. It doesn't make a sort of pivot into chaos. It's it's sort of this strange muted world 
that uh, unravels itself. Uh, yeah, the movie is purposely trying to disorient you with the immediate jump into gleeful chaos where mm-hmm. Lang is, which we should say about, the, we should say again, the movie is a comedy. Lang is basically luxuriating and having a great time uh, by the end of the movie because he's sort of come to terms with the chaos. It's almost like he came there with an idea of what normal is. And then by the end of the movie, he's accepted the new normal. Yeah, and I think this is one of the movies that can really nail the in media res thing. If this is all going to fall, we're going to tell you that it's going to fall apart. If this is all going to fall apart, how did we get here? In some movies, they just do the in media res thing because um, Quentin Tarantino did it. In this, it's it's basically like, oh, the chaos is here. You need to figure out why it's here. And the movie does not make it easy on you. No, and it, yeah, it's definitely setting it up with, well, here's the world, try to keep up. Yeah, he, uh, also, the one of the reasons that he really works in that manner is that he is a master of tone. You're, you're almost never, I, I feel like I was almost never disoriented. After, uh, after the first 15 minutes, I wasn't disoriented by the tone of the movie. Once I kind of caught that, I caught the thesis of the movie within those 15 minutes, and then I was just ready to go. He is not someone who dances around in that manner where you're just not really sure where the fuck the movie is veering left and right. The plot might go left and right, but his hand is so firm on the production. So um, do you want to kind of race to, do you want to hop to the end of the movie and then just do sort of broad reactions? Yeah, let's talk about the ending, but you know, I don't, this is going to sound like such a dickish way to say this. What do you think is worth talking about in the ending specifically? So the ending has a sort of climactic quality in the sense that the two major forces in the movie um, Lang is stuck in the middle between the two major forces in the movie, uh, Wilder, who's sort of trying to adapt to the chaos and try and find truth in it and try and find some sort of deliverance from the chaos. He basically wants to become top dog alpha male when this is all over and he wants the building to be somewhat more stable, but he doesn't. Want, he wants the building to be more stable with himself at the top. Royal is trying to fix the building the whole movie. He's constantly drawing up the, the blueprints. He's constantly talking about it in the final dinner scene when, with Lang, when Royal decides to... He's basically saying to Lang, yeah, this could be a, a catalyst for change. This building could be something to change the world. He's basically saying, like, I haven't given up on the building, um, which we should note that the upper... Uh, Lang is kind of between both classes. I think he's dead. I think he's dead center in the middle of the building. Isn't that the point? Yeah, and he's right in the middle of the building, and he essentially, at a certain, he's told to pick a side, and he refuses to lobotomize Wilder. Um, he said he's the sanest man in the building, which seems like an overstatement. And well, he's not. He Lang isn't one to judge at that point. <laughs> he's been painting his face and painting the boxes in his. Um, and, he had, and he had sex with Wilder's yeah. wife. Yeah. And he and he uh, and, and they basically do have this really creepy scene where they're going to throw him off the building with these wings, which may be made of of Royals designs for the building. Yeah, they are. Absolutely. Yeah. It's a very creepy thing. You're just like, oh, they, they sat and put those together off screen. This wasn't some like improvised of the moment thing like in Wolf of Wall Street when they're holding that guy over the, the balcony. This is like a, a true plan. Like. We're going to make this guy fly. 
See, I think that they just want they they knew they wanted to make someone fly. <laughs> That's also possible. They're like the little kid from because uh, I, of- I don't think that yeah I don't think that they had any specific because they're they're derailed just by uh, Royal saying that he still that he owes that Lang owes him a squash game and they're just like oh, okay I guess we'll find someone else. And you're like, does Royal does Royal know that that's the one thing that can stop them, or is Royal being sincere? It seems like he's being sincere. Like he, I, I like Lang. He entertains me. Yeah, I think he's being sincere. I don't think that he thinks, well, they'll understand squash. I think that literally, I think that's more of a squash being a privilege of the rich people. And he's like, hey, I got rich things to do with this person. <laughs> exactly. He's one of my. He's one of my pets. But yeah, so. So, and then after that, after there's a dinner scene between Lang and Royal, wherein Sienna Miller, she is a part of a group of women that is this this harem of royals that's essentially, like, trying to enact political change from within the system of the rich, it seems like. And they're very nurturing of of one another and trying to protect the children and the innocent. So at least the movie is pro-women. The She just comes up to the table. Royal turns his nose up at horse meat, and she chews down on it. Is that basically the movie saying that women are strong because they can deal with the realities and they don't tolerate the pretensions? Like, that was the way I read that. Is that was that how you read that, or did you just think it was something else? I think it was just weird. <laughs> just like um, Royal's kind of a wuss. <laughs> yeah, he he, <laughs> he does hungry. he does have a he does have a distaste for a lot of things that are going on. I mean, uh, Lang is eating it too. He's eating it less f- ferociously than Charlotte is, uh, Sienna Miller's character, but he's still eating it. Is he eating um, it less dishonestly than than Charlotte is? Like because I don't he's know. eating See, it with I, such, such upper class uh, pretensions that he's eating it with such such pomp and circumstance the fact that they had to eat a horse yeah i think i agree with you that this movie is pro women and even the harem that's been created it feels less like some sort of plan from the get-go but a bunch of smart women going this is descending into absolute madness we need to protect our kids and let's let's work together like this this doesn't feel part of a broader plan these are these these are these feel like the only people that saw the chaos for the chaos that it was, where everyone else just seemed to react to it as, oh, now this is part of our daily routine. Yep. I think that the movie believes that women are stronger in that regard, and that even though there's violence, there's violence, sexual violence being committed against women, which, sidebar, uh, another movie I picked in the uh, <laughs> the violence against at, at least, women. At least the one potential... I'm not sure if Wilder rapes Charlotte or just beats the shit out of her when he drags her into that room, but at least it's definitely not played for any sort of exploitative or uh, titillating. Oh, it, it, it is, is definitely a harrowing scene. It is wonderful how the movie skirted away from from that sort of... Cause it feels refreshing based on what we've seen, been watching lately. You've seen Kill List. You know yeah. that Ben Wheatley will show everything. Yeah. Uh, um, but he's, he has he seems to have a bit of restraint towards sexual violence, which I find uh, amenable in a director that clearly is drawing a lot of his, his inspirations from trash cinema. And also, I mean, although I will say one of the funniest lines of the movie is rape-based. <laughs> it is. The line where he says he's raping people Basically. that he's not supposed to. 
I think that's what it is. Where the rich, where the rich people are like, are they're not upset that the crime's getting committed, but the fact that that someone is committing a crime outside of their jurisdiction of who you can commit crimes against. Exactly, and also I think there's a note of well. We're the ones that decide who gets raped. So there's there's a there's the note of humor to it is so pitch black because it's basically just these rich people have an entitlement over everything. Yeah, and I think also the implication is that you can you can commit crimes against this these people, but you can't commit crimes against these people, which is also true of real life. You can go and murder a hobo and and then go murder someone on Wall Street and see which one gets more attention. I think I'm going to edit this week because I just want to edit that down to you can murder a hobo. Oh, I, I mean, I'll say it right now. You can murder a hobo. Thanks. That's you a good time. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but it, it's, it's such a it's a really tragic reality. It, it really is like there's there's basically pre-approved people that you can commit crimes against. And, and they drove that point home. I think that's why I think that that actually saying it as rape wasn't a cheap laugh that that is one of the most horrible crimes that you can commit so it's great to drive that joke slash point home and it's another point that you can make jokes that are about anything as long as the purpose of the joke isn't to punch down at victims and the purpose of that joke is not to make fun of rape victims the purpose of that joke is to make fun of these blase rich assholes who have a sense of entitlement over everything well, and a double standard. The idea that they agree that rape is a terrible crime, but only when it's committed against certain people is telling. Do you want to put a do you want to put a, a, a pin in this as best as we can? Uh, actually, I, there are a couple other little moments I'd like to talk about. We don't have to get into too deep. I will say the moment where Lang finally cracks at the grocery store. It's my paint. <laughs> yeah, where where he where someone tries to take the paint from him, where basically people are just scavenging the grocery store for supplies um, to eat. Like all the peaches are all moldy and everything else. Um, and he just again to he kind of speaks to him just wanting to go about his daily routine. Uh, he he's still painting his apartment or his condo, uh, and he wants to get that paint. And so he's taking the paint, and some other um, some other looter tries to take it from him, and he freaks out and beats the shit out of him and then just kind of gets back up and gets his paint and then is and then starts wildly painting the boxes that he hasn't unpacked in his condo it's it's a great again pitch black scene and kind of shows the break that our perspective character finally has and it's a pathetic fight it is not a heroic fight at all it is is an unstylized it's it the camera is shaking wildly and it is a a very not literally drunken but like a very sort of drunken brawl where they're just wrestling with each other and punching at each other until the, the guy lang was fighting with just rolls on his back the interesting thing about this movie is you expect Lang to be this sort of like a uh, voice of reason among the looters. Like you expect Lang to be like this, this you know, calm clinical doctor to come in and be like, you guys, we have to organize. We have to, you know, get a trash system set up, like shit like that. But instead, Lang is basically removed. He was removed himself mostly from the movie. So that single act of violence is really, really potent. Yeah, and then he kind of steps out of the movie, too, where he he just is kind of fucking Elizabeth Moss's character for a while with paint all over him and other things go on. So it's kind of the, oh, you thought that Lang was going to be the hero character of this movie. He's not. There's no heroes. 
And that feeds he just, even more. He into, just was the last. He was just the last to break. Yeah, and that feeds even more into the idea that like someone watching this movie not knowing what it is very well might watch it and be like, oh well, you know, he's he's pulling himself out, but he's going to be the reluctant hero later on. Like, no, yep. he's the reluctant, reluctant <laughs> person. Yeah, he just doesn't like that his his idea of, of normality has changed, and he's not ready to to make that switch, not because he necessarily has any moral ideas of what's going on, but it, it feels like, well, I, this is what I have decided is normal, and I, I'm not ready to to change that because it took me so long to get to this point to begin with. All right. Well, let's get into some final thoughts then. So, you know, I don't have too much. I wish I had better uh, detailed thoughts. I can just say that I feel like, we, uh, you know, the, the movie is so weird and strange, and I think... Again, I mean, Clockwork Orange, Brazil, those are two of my favorite movies of all time. And this kind of tapped into that bizarre type of movie world and even aesthetic. Yeah, it just, it feels like a once in a life, once in a decade type of movie. And I I fucking loved it. I think think it's going to be very hard for another movie to top this off my uh, best of 2016 movie list. Now, in fairness, I haven't seen a ton of 2016 movies, but the ones I've seen, like Green Room or The Witch, are have been fantastic. So it's already beating it's already beating a group of movies that's some tough competition. Yeah, I mean, it's nose to nose with Green Room right now for one of my favorites of 2016. I, I love it. I, I think it's a one of the movies I'm really glad that we got to bring on the show. Yeah, agreed. It's, so. it's challenging. It is very, it's very unique. I can think of movies that it pulls elements from, but I can't think of anything that it's emulating. Except Clockwork Orange. <laughs> Maybe a little Clockwork Orange. Just the carpeting. Just mostly, yeah. It's like, oh, you stole that carpet from Clockwork Orange. Yeah, they like that shag carpeting. <laughs> um, it, it almost made me wonder, and I, I mean this sincerely, was Clockwork Orange supposed to be this weird 70s kitschy a retro future or was that just what England looked like in the 70s? I don't know. I think that Clockwork Orange was supposed to be uh, futurism because of shit like the that crazy sports car they have and like those signs that like nobody would have like in their yard like when they, they're invading that person's house and they have, there's just a sign in their yard that says home. Like I have one of those. You don't well you don't own a home. They come with homes. Uh, you had yeah. to rub it in. Yeah, that's the first thing. Well, technically, a bank owns my home, probably <laughs> controlled by people at the top floor of their condo building. Um, oh, definitely those those horse eaters, dash fornicators. So, uh, what are we Other talking about? Yeah. <laughs> Actually, both. Oh, horse no. eaters and fornicators. Um <laughs> That was High Rise. Again, it's on demand on all the normal places. If you're lucky enough to live in a big fancy city, you can probably see it in theaters too. I think both of us cannot recommend it enough. Um, it's no dark city, but it's pretty good. Are you there? Oh, I'm there. Okay. <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't know that icy silence was because you were... It's hard to tell uh, me hanging up versus uh, me trying to give you a death stare. Yep, it's re- it's really hard. We don't do video Skype, Peter. You got you got to use your words. Um, so we're gonna talk about the next uh, four weeks of shows. These are gonna go through the end of June before we start our mild rebranding. Yeah, Aaron, so you next- want to take us through uh, the next four weeks? I'll do. How about I do two and then you do the next? Sure. All right. So next week we are doing Candyman. 
a movie that you've probably seen. If you're listening to this podcast, it is fantastic. And we are going to be joined by a celebrity host of the Try It, You'll Like It podcast, Joseph Finn. We are extremely excited to have another guest on. Joseph had never seen Candyman before a couple weeks ago. And I won't tell you his thoughts on it, but that is... We were kind of using this as some sort of nostalgia check because... Peter and I both liked it, but we haven't seen it in a while, and we are we are lucky enough to be joined by a guest who has went his entire life without seeing it till recently. So I think it's going to be an excellent episode. The next week, for our 10th anniversary episode, uh, we are going to be talking about the 1981 movie Possession, which is an amazingly strange, even stranger than, this, uh, than High Rise, I think, Peter. I think so, too. Um, um, it's a little hard to get a hold of. It is, it is an amazing movie. And we hope that you will join us. And then after that, our, we're going to have another guest. The movie is going to be A Simple Plan. And our guest is going to be Dustin Kosky, uh, who has been supportive of the show. And we can't thank him enough. He is an author and a podcaster as well. His podcast is uh, Chilling Tales, which is very good. And, uh, yeah, when he comes on, we'll uh, have him talk a little bit about his book as well. So stay tuned for that. And then after that, we're going to have a true outlier strange piece, which is The Apple, which will bring together my hate for musicals with my love for canon movies. So that should be uh, an interesting episode. I have not seen the movie. Yeah, I have not seen it either. But, yeah, Peter hates musicals. What what What's stronger for Peter, the love of... Or the the love of schlocky canon movies, or um, or musicals. Oh, we'll see. So we'll, we'll find out the last week of June. Peter. It's a battle of me versus me. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Peter versus Peter. So, and then after that, we're going we're going to have a lot more guests. We're going to have a lot of uh, changes to announce. Uh, more changes to the procedural parts of the show. If you enjoy us bantering, that is not going away. Unfortunately, um, and also, unfortunately for you. Uh, this podcast will not uh, get better hosts anytime soon. <laughs> We'd also like to, like to throw a thank you out there to Zach Groton, who uh, was our guest on the Godzilla vs. Spong Monster episode and has also been doing artwork for each of our episodes on SoundCloud. Check those out. They are awesome. Um, Zach is an amazing person who you will definitely hear on this podcast in the near future. If you like our podcast, you can find us on SoundCloud. You can hear us at listen to our podcast. And we are also available on Stitcher, TuneIn, and obviously iTunes. If you aren't seeing our show in your podcatcher of choice, then please reach out to us. Yeah, and I'll write a review if you want. Please make it positive. If you listen to two hours of this, you might like our show. Well, you can make the um, review negative. Just make sure you give us five stars. Oh, yeah. We, we said this before. Sarcastic reviews. Always welcome. As long as this... The, the star rating reflects your sarcasm. <laughs> so thank you so much for joining us again. I hope you had fun. I have been. I will continue to be Aaron Armstrong. And I also need a new catchphrase at some point. And I'm just Pete. How do you come up with these amazing outros <laughs> every time? I crossed my arms also. <laughs> you nod your head. <laughs> like I dream a genie. Yep. Yep.